this great book since around January. We're going to continue that. And so, you know, typically what we do on Sundays is we just take books of the Bible and we go through them verse by verse. And the uh, benefit of that is we feel is it allows the Bible to inform us and form our understanding as to who God is as opposed to um, what we're typically left with, which is us trying to speculate and form our understanding of who God is. So in other words, what we end up with is when we don't let God inform us through his word, we end up with a God made in our image that's actually impotent. He can't help you. He can't save you. He can't rescue you. He can't cleanse you. He can't forgive you. He can't wash you. But if we allow God's word to inform us as to who he is, then what we're left with is with a God that's powerful and mighty to save and good and is able to wash us and cleanse us and restore that which is broken and dysfunctional within our lives. And so that's what we do on Sundays. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to talk today as we've been going through the book of Ephesians and um, we're at the place where Paul now begins to begin to talk about what it looks like if you're a Christian, someone that's following Jesus, uh, a Christian by definition is somebody that God has acted on your behalf. He's washed you, he's healed you, he's cleansed you. It's, we've been kind of looking at this, uh, chapters one through three describe the actions of a healing God. God did something, God healed, God restored, God rescued. And then really chapters uh, four through six is the, uh, the actions of a healing people uh, or healed people, people that have been healed by God, how they respond or react in ways that bring healing into this world. And so uh, what Paul is going to begin to talk about now is going to introduce sort of a metaphor that he has not used yet in the book of Ephesians, but he's used in other uh, books and other that, he, that he's written. And it's also a popular metaphor that's also used in the Old Testament as well as amongst other, um, you know, present day back in the first century. It's the idea of light and darkness. And so we'll be taking a look at what Paul has to say regarding light and darkness and how that pertains to us. So if you guys don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have some ushers that would be happy to get you guys a Bible. Um, raise them nice and high so they can see you. But before I get into this, because one of the things I realized, like covering a topic like light and darkness, um, how to tackle that well, how to cover that well, how to get the idea across well, um, can be a little bit challenging because in a lot of ways these are sort of ambiguous terms. Uh, they have to be filled with meaning because otherwise we're simply left with uh, bringing definition to what light is and what darkness is based upon our own. Um, and so, uh, or another way that I thought that we can get to really a good point in understanding as to what light and darkness is and what it means to be rescued from light or rescued from darkness into light is to tell you guys a story. I'm not going to tell you the story, but we have a video that I'm going to show you guys. In fact, um, there's a handful of guys in our church um, that run uh, a ministry or nonprofit org called the Halay Project, and they send people around the world to go chronicle different stories and different missionaries, people that are doing God's work, uh, tell, to tell the story, to bring their stories really to the world so that uh, people in a bigger, broader audience can hear about them. So what you're going to see is a little story uh, that was done. Uh, guys had gone up a couple years, I think it was about a couple years ago, maybe even less than that, um, up in San Francisco. There's a thing called City Impact going on up there. And so this is basically a promo video that was done for City Impact, but within the promo is actually the story of a gal by the name of Anna. And the uh, reason why I think her story is really poignant is because uh, I think her story depicts very radically, very clearly, with great clarity, uh, what it means to be taken from darkness and brought into light. So this is Anna's story. Um, uh, my hope is that you guys are going to resonate with it. Obviously, to some degree, her story is going to be different than your story in terms of the actual stuff that she uh, was rescued from the stuff, the darkness that had basically uh, destroyed and ruined and wrecked her. Um, but nonetheless, each one of us are going to have our various forms of darkness that we have wrestled with uh, subjectively, meaning each one of us have different struggles, things, different things that crush us or oppress us. But then objectively, there are different things uh, that the Bible describes that all of us have had um, upon our lives or imposed upon our lives in the form of darkness, and that is sin, that is death, and yet what we see is God doing something on our behalf, Paul reminding us of that by way of rescuing us from darkness and into light. So before we get into that, before we actually read the story, um, I'm going to let Anna tell you her story. So take a look at the little video clip. Two years ago, I received a phone call that just rocked my world. So this is the Tenderloin. Um, we're on Eddy Street right now. So you can see there's a police station right over here and there's people selling drugs on that corner. 
And now I'm going to show you where um, I grew up. I used to see a lot of girls prostitute themselves. I used to always ask my mom, what are them girls doing? They were young, but I was young at the time. She wouldn't tell me. She was completely normal, had a great family, just in a poverty-stricken district where, man, literally one or two decisions later, you're, you're caught up in the other side of the district. I wanted to be a nurse, and um, I always remember not wanting to ever get beat up by a guy because um, my uncle used to beat up on my aunt in front of us, so I never wanted to go through that. My name's Anna, and um, this is where I grew up. I came here when I was seven years old. It was kind of rough living here, as you can see. It's uh, a rough neighborhood. It brings back a lot of memories. Growing up in the Tenderloin was kind of scary. The only place I felt safe was coming to church. I remember growing up meeting Chris because he used to do youth outreach and he knocked on my door and invited me to a program. We had, we had known her for a good seven, eight years. You would never think that this would be the story of Anna. I started hanging around with a different type of people and basically bad influence. I remember meeting her, her name was Never, and a second girl named Amanda. She offered me a place to stay. It was just gonna be a place where I can sleep and be safe, and um, I believed her. They had a plan, a plan for me. I guess I was gonna be their project. I just asked a simple question. I was like, Anna, what's up? Where have you been? And that's when she went on a two-hour story of how she was actually trafficked. She gave me the address. It was about three or four blocks from City Impact. When my wife and I went to bed that night, we we just felt like it was a defining moment in our life. We're either going to ignore what we just heard, uh, make ourselves numb to it, or we have to do something. And the majority of the injustice in Anna's story happened behind closed doors really convicted us about what's happening in these apartment buildings. That's what burdened us ultimately was who is going door to door and who's gonna shine the light in the dark place and identify the injustice and execute justice. And so out of those talks, we just came up with the initiative called Adopt a Building. I truly believe we could flip a district around. 
I know it sounds crazy, I know it sounds childlike to, to imagine something like that, but we have seen it already take place, and so it's just a matter of scale. Why? Because we're supposed to love our neighbor. That's it. It's really as simple as that. Anybody could have knocked on my door and just asked me if I'm okay, if I need help. What I think City Impact is doing, it's really positive for the community. They knock on people's door, intervene in their life. others that are in my same situation. It's going to take a minute, but I know that God has a plan for me, and that's why I'm here. I want to read the uh, passage that we'll be taking a look at. And I want you to sense in a story, obviously, like I said, it's going to be different than ours, but there's elements to it that you and I, I'm sure we can bear witness to. That's ours, that we can own, that we can look at and say, there. if you're a Christian today, I mean, if you're someone who has followed Christ and you've been washed and cleansed, then that means every single one of us have had some area, region of our lives in which would have been constituted or described as darkness. And yet Jesus rescued us from that darkness and put us into something different, something new, you know, Paul's exhortation is going to be is that now that you've been taken out of that darkness, live in the light. Don't go back to the darkness. Uh, don't go back to that lifestyle. Don't go back to those things that were done in the darkness, those things that were shameful, those things that were once uh, part of your alienation, part of your defilement, part of your brokenness, part of your shame. Don't live in such a way. Don't willingly go back into that which you've been rescued from. And so... This is really the message of what Paul is going to say. So I'll pick it up at verse 8, and we'll go down to about verse 14. So follow along. It says this, verse 8. says, For at one time you were darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, and take no part in the unlawful or unfruitful works of darkness, but... Instead, expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. God, we ask you that you would help our hearts to awake to awaken, to see, Lord, the things that we've been rescued from, the things that uh, if we're not saved, if there are people here today, God, that don't know you, to at least begin to see the things that you want to rescue them from, that you want to save them from, that you want to remove them out of, that contribute to their brokenness and defilement and hurt and oppression and pain and sin and ultimately death. But Jesus, you're a good Savior, so help us this morning, we pray, to hear your voice. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I'm going to first of all jump into before next slide, um, we'll show the next slide. I want to just basically figure out, there's different ways in which we can say it, in essence the same thing. So if you can think of it this way, Paul introduces, the first time he actually introduces this metaphor in the book of Ephesians in which he describes or distinguishes light from darkness. It's a common metaphor, like I said, um, it's actually found in the prophets, Isaiah, uses light, he talks about light dawning in the dark places, and um, oftentimes the metaphor of light and darkness kind of mean pretty much what most of us would assume it to mean. Light is obviously good, dark is obviously bad, that's why one of the reasons why in, like, in the old school like you know, movies you'd have the bad guy always wear the dark hat, and the good guy always wear the white hat, or ride the white horse, and the other bad guy rides the dark horse, and so on and so forth, and the point of the matter is, is we typically understand what that means, that white is oftentimes light, or light is oftentimes that which is good or pure, and this is the same type of idea. Um, it also distinguishes the fact that this is what God is. It describes Jesus uh, says that his father, God, 
is, dwells in light that's unapproachable and that God is light. And these are descriptions. Jesus describes himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he talks about, I'm the light of the world. So these are all metaphors that describe light shining in darkness. And the metaphor also, if you were to look at the converse in terms of darkness, that which is done in darkness is, is oftentimes uh, leads to brokenness. So imagine if this entire room was completely pitch black. I don't mean, you know, quasi-black, semi-black, a little bit black, but totally pitch black um, to where um, we could not see our hand even if it was placed in front of our face. If you've ever been in that type of darkness, that type of darkness has a, a dehumanizing effect upon you. One of the reasons for that is, is because in the darkness, you don't need to know somebody's face because faces don't matter. Identity doesn't matter. It's just darkness. And to survive in an environment that's just pitch black, you literally have to bump into things. You hurt your body. You hurt other people. You stumble. You fall. You trip. You, uh, this is, it, the implication is there's death and dying and pain and suffering and hurt and alienation and dehumanization in the darkness. And yet Jesus describes um, him coming into this world as light to rescue those that are in this state or status of darkness to be brought into light. But this metaphor can also be transposed, just like music. You to have a musical score, sing a particular song that's like, say, in the chord of G. Transpose it into the chord of D. It's the same song, but it's a different way of hearing it. So this same metaphor can also be transposed in terms of, say, for example, um, that of language like orphan and child. So it could be the same thing. Paul could basically say in something like this, now that you are no longer an orphan, live as one who has the involvement or the influence of a loving parent. So obviously the idea is that once being a child, uh, that's an orphan, uh, there's no rules, there's no regulations. Some of us might be like, I love that, but there's also no love either. There's no forgiveness, there's no pardon, there's no washing, there's no cuddles, there's no snuggles, there's no sitting on the couch with mom and dad watching a movie, there's no having a dinner to share one's heart, none of that. It's just cold, dead, alienation, sorrow. And what Paul is saying is that what God does is he comes in and he adopts us into a family. It's another metaphor the Bible uses. So really the idea would be if you are no longer an orphan, don't live like an orphan, live like a child that has a loving parent involved invested in your life to live like an orphan while you have a parent that's lovingly involved and invested in your life would basically be a betrayal of what that family is all about now some might say well do kids immediately the moment they get adopted become these perfect little children uh, that perfectly reflect the new standards of mom and dad and the answer to that is absolutely no this is the same way that children when are brought into this world that are biological don't immediately come out perfect, right? Uh, constantly obeying, you know, just like, yes, mommy. You know, they don't do that. They don't live like that. The lifelong excursion of learning how to be obedient, learning how to function within a family takes a long time. In the same way, that's what a Christian life is, is that once we're adopted in the family of God, we don't immediately function perfectly reflecting the characteristic in the life of God that takes time. It takes time and investment, God investing in us, God speaking to us, God transforming us, God changing us, God convicting us of things and areas in which our behavior and our actions don't reflect God. Things that we maybe once used to do, we stop doing. Things that we uh, should be doing, we start doing. All of this begins to happen within the family. Another way of saying this as well is that now that you're no longer a slave, live as a free person. It's the idea is that, uh, that if, if a person were a slave, living as a slave, and yet they've been emancipated. They've been set free. Um, in fact, this, uh, read stories that this is exactly what happened in our uh, country when uh, the emancipation took place and slaves were actually liberated and set free. Some of them had a really hard time actually adapting to the newfound freedom that they had. They lived their whole life being raised as a slave, being told what to do, not having freedoms, not being able to really think for themselves, uh, always having to get permission for stuff. Now, as free people, it's almost like they didn't know how to live as free people. Some of them actually wanted to go back to slavery because they didn't know anything else. That was all that they were familiar with. And in the same way, it's the same idea as that if you have been once a slave to sin, slave to certain habits, and then Jesus comes and liberates you, 
Don't go back to that. It's the same thing that Paul is saying with regard to the light-darkness metaphor. So now that you're rescued from the darkness, live as one that's in the light. Which brings us to the very next slide we'll take a look at, and we'll begin to kind of move forward in this. Because verse 8 is what's typically called indicative imperative type of a paradigm. So in other words, what this means is kind of big theological language that describes an indicative is something that indicates something that happened, something that took place, um, whether it was with your involvement or whether it was something that involved you that was acted upon or done upon you. And this is what Paul is basically saying. So for example, the indicative in chapter eight is this, is that at one time you were darkness, but now you are made light in the Lord. So in other words, the indicative in this particular case is an indication of what was factual. That if you're a Christian, at one time you were in darkness, but God acted upon you. God did something on behalf of you to remove you from that status of darkness and bring you into the place of light. That's the indicative. Now, out of the indicative comes the imperative. The way that we would describe it here is Paul then says, so therefore walk as children of light. So in other words, if God acted on you, God did something that brought you out of darkness into light, what Paul is then saying in terms of the imperative is something that you are called to do, a command if you would, therefore live as children of the light. The implication would be is don't live as people of darkness. If you've been rescued from darkness, don't go back to darkness because you've been brought to light. Same thing you'd say to uh, an orphan that's now adopted. Uh, don't go back living like an orphan. You, you have a mom and dad. You have an inheritance. One of these days you're going to get, you're going to get to go to college. You're going to get a job. You're going to get a house one of these days. You're going to have all of the stuff that will one day be yours. Don't live. Don't act like an orphan again because you're not really an orphan. Uh, it's, this is the type of language that Paul is basically trying to get across for us. Now, something needs to be said because one of the things that oftentimes religious people like to do is when we start moving out of the realm of understanding what grace is and understanding what the gospel proclaims over us, we start basically inverting these things. So what we do is we basically put the imperative first and then hope that the indicative will take place. In other words, what we mean, what I mean by this is that we oftentimes think that if I act like an orphan, or I'm sorry, if I act like I, I'm a child of God, then God will accept me. Or if I act like I'm in the light, then I'll really be in the light. If, I, if I'll act really good, act really Christian, do Christian stuff, talk Christian language, buy Christian junk, do all the Christian stuff, then I will one day get to get the pass and go to heaven. And the reality is, is this is actually an inversion of the gospel. In fact, it's not even the gospel. It's basically an attempt to somehow earn God's favor over your life so that when you see him face to face, or when your life comes to an end, that you can look at God and say, well, God, I did all these things. I acted uh, not like an orphan. I acted like a, a firstborn son. I did all the good things I was supposed to do. So God, you owe me now, heaven, you owe me life. And that leads to one of two things. Either A, you become extremely arrogant, and you look at everybody else that does not act like you, and you look at them with condescension, because you look at them and think, you judge them based upon how they're living, how they're not living, and you always compare yourself, and guess who always comes out on top? Typically, you. You look at yourself and be like, I'm the good Christian. I read my Bible every day. I do all this stuff. I've kept myself here. I've gone to church. I've served that church. I've given money away, and they've not done anything. They deserve what they have coming to them. They deserve, you know, having pain or loss or suffering, whatever, coming into their life. I deserve God's blessing because look at all this good stuff that I've done. Or this second type of phase that oftentimes enters into people's life is despair. Either arrogance or despair. You look at your life and you realize, like, I'm trying to do all this stuff. Nothing's going my way. My life is broken down. I feel lonely. I feel alone. I feel broken. I feel oppressed. I feel depressed. I feel all of these things. And I've been doing all this stuff for God, and God's not been acting. Because you've taken this good news called the gospel and you've turned it inside out and you've been trying to work hard to get God to like you. And the reality is, is that if you understand the gospel, the gospel proclaims that God has already done something. God has already acted. God has already sent the Son. God has already loved you. So in other words, what God does through the gospel, the good news, is that God acts upon you loves you, not because you're somebody lovely, but because you are not lovely, and he loves you so much, he wants to turn you into something lovely. That process 
of him turning you into that something lovely is where we get the imperative that God now begins to change you and transform you by, first of all, changing your heart, by acting upon you, by doing something for you that was so full of love. The question is, why did God do that? because, simply, he loves you. This is what we're going to begin to see. First of all, we'll take a look at three things. One is that within this imperative, walk as children of light, what does this involve? That's kind of the question we're going to try to understand. What does it involve? First thing that it involves is really a new identity. A new identity that no longer are you associated, if you're a follower of Jesus, with darkness. And again, you can define darkness and try to understand what darkness is. And for uh, Gal Anna, obviously, her darkness is very obvious. Her darkness involved rape. Her darkness involved being held against her will. Her darkness involved being tortured, being uh, sexually brutalized. Her darkness involved feeling filthy and defiled and broken and looking at herself in a mirror and no doubt shunned over the fact and ashamed over how she felt and looked and all of these things just to the point where she would look at herself and want to run or erase herself off the face of the planet because she was so ashamed. That was her darkness. Yet, Jesus rescued her. So she's no longer that. She's no longer a prostitute. She's not in that anymore. She still perhaps bears the scars. It's part of who she was, but her identity is foundationally, fundamentally changed. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the reality. This is the great reality. The good news of the gospel is that you are not identified with your past. That may be part of your background, but it doesn't mark you. It doesn't mar you to the point where that's how you're seen for the rest of your life. God gives you a new name. God gives you a new identity. And this is really good news. I want you to think about this because at the end of the day, you can ask the question, well, why would God do this? And a simple answer is because he loves you. Look, I realize a lot of us, I mean, we, we filter with, with our, our lives are like this one big constant filter of information, right? This is one of the biggest culprits of it, right? We have our own cell phones and we're trying to figure out, like we read news channels and we read blogs and Facebook draw, you know, Facebook uh, pages that kind of constantly come up and trying to filter through all sorts of information that's constantly bombarding us. And one of the problems with that is, is that we don't know how to discern between weighty information, in other words, information that's of, sub, that's of substance, and information that's weightless. So a lot of times what ends up happening is information that should actually shake us. You know, we read it, we see it, we watch the headlines. It should bring us to some overwhelming sense of compassion and tears. Like, for example, children dying in Palestine or children dying somewhere in Syria. Uh, Those types of things should grip us to the point where we feel a sense of compassion. But sometimes we feel the same emotion we feel in watching a news thread about children suffering and dying in some foreign country as we discover with regard to the latest headline with Miley Cyrus. We just don't feel the same thing. There's something wrong. We don't know how to filter information like that. And the problem is often that transposes into our understanding of the Bible where we can read passages and understand and hear truths like God rescues you because he simply loves you. And that does not grip us. It does not move us. It does not shake us or rattle us. And I want you to just pause for a moment and think about this. That if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you've given your heart to Christ, however you want to identify or distinguish what happened in your life, what took place is God has given you an identity. You are no longer in darkness. You're in light. Simply because he moved over you, because he loves you. He loves you. That's unbelievable. But it's true, that is what we're actually called to believe, to trust in the gospel. And that's what Paul reinforces, is that we have a new identity. I love the story of John Newton. Some of you guys know who he is. He's the guy that wrote that song, Amazing Grace. Um, I love what he had to say about this. He says this, he says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Love that. Just two things, like all the things that you know, I know, I'm not that smart. Like all I know is I'm a great sinner, and yet God is a great Savior. And what's amazing about his life, if you know anything about his history, is that he actually 
owned a slave trading boat. So he was in the business. He profited. He made money off of slave trading, all right? The, the gnarly, evil type of slave trading that you would imagine all this slavery kind of evolved into, especially in America. That, that was him. He owned businesses and the boats that dealt and traded with slaves. And that always haunted him. Even as a pastor, years later, as a Christian following Jesus, he always felt an overwhelming sense of shame and guilt over that, even though he knew he was saved. That's why when, when thinking about his past, he could say stuff like that. Like, Look, all I know is that I'm just a great sinner. And God is a great savior. He washes me, cleanses me. That's just something that he did in the past, but he regularly immerses me, regularly reveals to me his love and his grace and his kindness. And obviously the line of amazing grace, he says this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And again, you can hear sort of echoes of him remembering his past. Him, he describes uh, an autobiography or a biography that I read about him describing uh, just the sounds, the wails, the cries of people that were on his boat being tortured and put to death, like under his guard. And, but before he was a Christian, he just, it, to him, it was just commodity. It was just profit. That's all it was. And, but later, those cries came back to haunt him, and he would go back and read the songs that he would write to remind him that, no, that's not who I am. I'm not that anymore. I've been washed from that, that was, that was my darkness, but God has rescued me from that darkness, darkness has put me in his light. I'm a new person. There's a new identity. The second thing that we see that Paul also talks about is that um, this new identity, walking as children of light, also involves good works. Again, this is one of the things that oftentimes Protestant believers oftentimes feel like we always need to uh, somehow, uh, you know, put these little statements like, well, you know, we're not saved by works, and we know that. But the point of the matter is we oftentimes downplay the importance of works. And so here's the point that I really want to try to establish. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for good works. So when Jesus rescues you, he rescues you not to just sort of hang around and loiter and wait till one of these days you're going to die and go to heaven. He saves you so that in this life now, you can use your redeemed life that has been brought to light to go forth as a light bearer bringing light into those dark places. And again, to me, I, 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 don't, I don't know if this was intentional. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just part of the, the normal warp and woof of the life of that girl, Anna. But I love the fact that in her story, and it was the way it was being portrayed for us, is that here was this lady that had undergone this great radical conversion from insane darkness to unbelievable light. And what is she doing? While she's in the light, she's like going back into the same neighborhoods that she grew up, that the darkness pervaded and oppressed and crushed and crippled her. And yet she's going back into that same, perhaps even building complex, bringing food. That is perfect display of good works. She is doing to others what had been done to her. Good works. And the way Paul puts this... I'll just read it to you. He says in verse 9, he says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. So what Paul is basically saying is not leaving the definition of what light is to just our imagination. Paul says, I'll tell you what light is. Light looks like what it means to walk in the light, what it looks to walk in the light, what it looks to do, bear forth good fruits. He uses this kind of interesting phrase, the fruit of light. I, I just kind of chewed on that a lot, like fruit of light. I never really, really thought about that. The fruit of light. Those are two pictures or metaphors, I don't know, I, I would normally put together, but Paul's like, look, light has, bears, brings forth, produces fruit. And that fruit, that goodness, is something that looks a lot like good, right, and true. Or goodness, righteousness, and truth. Sometimes one of the best ways to understand certain words is to understand their inverse or what's their opposite. So for example, good, obviously the opposite of good would be bad or evil or wicked. The opposite of right or righteous would be injustice. Some would translate that particular word justice or righteousness or unrighteousness. So think about it this way. God is at work in this world bringing about justice. Justice. Think about justice as being healing or restoring that which is out of joint. So think of a system, a world, a society that is not functioning well. Think of a body. Make this personal. Let's say you had a body and you got a sprained leg or uh, you got a heart palpitation, or you got some sort of sickness, and it's keeping you from not being able to function well, or you got some sort of like uh, dizzy spells, you're not able to walk straight because you got this sense of not, you're not, you don't have equilibrium, so you're always off balance. You are not able to flourish 
and be able to help other people. The idea of maybe going to hand out food or work at a soup kitchen or serve other people is not something that is readily on the top of your mind because your body is not functioning soundly. That's a picture to some degree of a bigger sense of injustice, not that it's a moral injustice in terms of being sick, of course, but the idea is justice and the idea of the Bible is God putting that which is wrong back to right, that which is out of joint back in joint, that which is in chaos back into order. So that flourishes. And what Paul is saying is that when the fruit of light is at work in the life of a believer who's been taken out of darkness, placed into light, their life will look like goodness coming forth. And the word goodness comes from, uh, no doubt, the beginning, uh, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it says that uh, in some total of everything, God looks at all his creation and says, it is good. It is very good. This resonates with the picture that what God is doing in his new creation, you and I, if you're in Christ, is creating us so that we would bear forth good works, works that harmonize with his good creation. Thirdly, true. Uh, the opposite of truth, obviously, would be lies or duplicity. When you think about it this way, most of us, we live our lives in lies. We lie to ourselves. We say things like, I'm not, I'm not good enough, shouldn't go to church, shouldn't hang out with people. We say things like, if my crap gets exposed, I'm going to be shunned. They're going to gossip about me. They're going to hate me. They knew my past. They will avoid me. They will talk about me. I will be sort of the subject of their jokes. I don't want to have anything about me brought to the light. And we live oftentimes in these perennial fears being found out. And we oftentimes... We tell these lies. We live in lies, all sorts of lies. We lie to each other. We live in sort of this world where lying is just sort of the way to survive. And yet with God, within the Trinity, within the nature, the character of who God is, there's no lying, no duplicity. Now I want you to think about this because relationships suffer when uh, you can't trust the other person, right? If you've ever been in a relationship with somebody and you don't know if you can trust them, um, that relationship ceases to grow. It could be a marriage. It could be, let's say, I, I remember I was, uh, rather than using, you know, infinite metaphors of marriage, uh, I'll use a metaphor of a family, all right? I remember talking to a guy not too long ago, and uh, the problem was with dad. Dad was regularly lying about porn addiction and drugs, and Nobody ever really knew, was his dad telling the truth? And part of the problem with that is at some point, every single member of that family suffered because no one can trust dad anymore. No one really knows, is dad telling the truth? Is dad going out and getting drunk? Where was dad for those three hours of time where he was on the radar screen? Where, what's dad doing now at home with the computer by himself? There's no trust. And because of that, there's no flourishing. There's no flourishing. But within a relationship where there's trust, there's flourishing. And this is what God says. I tell truth. I bring you into the truth. And therefore, you as truth tellers can bring about a new world, a new life that is not bound by lies, not bound by wickedness, not bound by injustice, but actually is redefined by goodness and righteousness and truth telling. Final thing, finish up here, is uh, walking as children of light not only involves a new identity, good works, but also, perhaps most controversially, is exposure of darkness. That part of walking as one who's in the light, there will be a form of exposure of darkness. Darkness will be brought to light. Now, we looked at this last week. There's a passage that Paul uh, talked about. I think it's around verse 7. I'll read to and says, do not associate with them. And that's kind of led to some variant um, translations or interpretations that, well, maybe what Paul's saying is that the them is a reference to people. So what Paul is saying is have nothing to do with them, those people, those people that do bad things, those people in the context that are sexually immoral, those people that are messed up, those people that do things with their lives that are shameful. Um, some have been led to believe that maybe what Paul is saying is disassociate from them, disengage from them, pull back, and stay away. But uh, most 
others that have looked at this passage are really identifying that the them is more of a reference to the actions that others do. Don't do the actions. Don't live in a lifestyle that is sexually immoral or that is doing things that are better relegated to the darkness. And the reason why Paul unfolds this further now is he says, look, because if you are in Christ, if you are in the light, then therefore walk as people in the light and therefore expose those deeds which are actually there in the darkness. And so what Paul is going to begin to say now, part of a life that is in the light is one that is prone to expose these actions of darkness. So for example, there's three different ways in which you can think about exposure of darkness. One has to do with exposure by way of private correction, right? Exposure by way of private correction, meaning if you know somebody and they're doing something in their life that's actually bringing about languishing, let's say somebody's got a uh, an addiction to drugs or alcohol or they're constantly downloading porn is ruining their ability to thrive and flourish and understand and walk with God or they got certain habits that are actually bringing about brokenness within their family and you know this type of stuff or it's ruining the, the relationship or maybe they're holding under a grudge or they're refusing to forgive somebody that has tried to, uh, to bring reconciliation. Uh, what, what Paul is saying and what others have said in the New Testament is you, you confront those things because there's darkness. It's darkness. It's darkness that's actually bringing oppression as opposed to freedom, bringing languishing rather than flourishing. And what Paul is saying is that part of walking in the light, part of being a child of the light that walks according to the new nature that we've been given is to expose these types of things. So that can be in by way of private. You know, pull them aside, you talk to them, say, hey, I love you. Um, I know you may feel like I'm, I'm judging, but I'm not. I love you. Uh, there's some things I need to talk to you about, and here's what they are. Another way is public correction, public correction. This is obviously, you know, for example, you know, maybe via a blog or something like that. You know, if you see something that's very public, sometimes things need to be. And I would say typically public correction comes after there's been certain key steps that have been walked through first before things go public. And then finally, another way is just simply by exposure, by way of conduct. In other words, you live in such a way that your lifestyle brings to light, brings light to that which is wicked or evil around you. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 1 describes Paul writing to women that were in the church. Uh, I'm sorry, not Paul. It was actually Peter. Um, and Peter's writing to a group of uh, people that were within the church, uh, Christian ladies that obviously had been uh, become Christians, followers of Jesus, and yet their marriage uh, partner, their, their husbands, were not uh, believers. And Paul, or Peter basically says to them, he says, look, live your life in such a way so that by the conduct, same word, by their conduct, they would see the goodness of, of God and hopefully repent and turn. So the idea is not to just simply bring conformity so that people stop doing certain things that are described as darkness, but they would live in such a way that flourishes. Because darkness, if you think of it this way, darkness implies languishing, brokenness, oppression, hurt, shame, pain. Light implies life, vibrancy, goodness, righteousness, flourishing. All these things are to be characterized by way of light. So as people that were once in darkness now being brought to light, we have a posture that says we want to see everybody brought into flourishing. Let me give an example of how this oftentimes can devolve very quickly. All right. I use Bible software oftentimes when I'm studying for a sermon, and um, sometimes in the Bible software they have like this, these links that you can go and download different sermons and all that. So I thought, oh, just, you know, a bunch of names of pastors and people I'd never even heard before. So I thought, I'll just listen to them. It would be interesting to hear what other people have to say about this passage. And uh, so I have no way of knowing like where these people are at, but I can tell um, a couple of the guys that were kind of preaching were really, really kind of old, not that that's anything wrong, but um, um, I can tell they're probably from somewhere back east, maybe Bible Belt area. Again, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's perfectly legit and fine. Um, but what was really fascinating to me is I can tell just by them talking that the church was really not, not very large. It was a small group, small gathering, maybe 25, 30 people. My guess, if I had to kind of read between the lines, probably most of them were family members. And one of the things that came across really clearly in the message was the guy basically yelling at his people were like, that's one of the reasons why we don't ever hang out with them Presbyterians because they're all wicked. You know, and it's just like, or those Baptists, you know, out there doing wicked stuff, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like what this guy is doing is he's basically calling every single person that names the name of Jesus that is not exactly lined up like him, darkness. So what, have, what you have is basically this very small, exclusive, arrogant group of people that looks condescendingly upon everybody else that's not 
exactly like them. That is not what Paul's talking about here. What Paul is saying is that by your life, living in a way in which you've been redeemed, taken from darkness, brought into light, living as children of light, bringing righteousness by your good works through this world, people will see the goodness of your life. Sometimes that involves communicating to people that you love, that you know, that you're concerned about the darkness that is consuming them, that is shrinking their soul, that is bringing their life into a perennial form of languishing and brokenness, that you speak to them, you talk to them, you confront them is the way that Paul uses the language here. And the concept that really is basically being brought brought to bear, another analogy I would give is think of it this way. Um, have you ever been around like a young child and maybe actually watched a movie? Let's say, you know, a five-year-old or something like that. I remember when my kids were young, we, you know, as a family, we liked to watch movies. And a lot of times as, at a very young age, we watched movies and I would always kind of pause them and we'd talk about them. So even like Lion King, we're like, okay, see right, right there? That's like clear pantheism. I'm like, pan what, daddy? Like pantheism. All right. All right. Here's, here's what pantheism is. It's the belief that God is... You know, and so anyways, so from a very young age, you know, we would, I would like theologically train my kids to watch movies. You know, I, I, I didn't want them to like miss out on Lion King and like some of these really good flicks, but I didn't want them to get like indoctrinated by, by weird paganistic theology as well. And so here's my point. All right. That's, that's not, that's not where I'm getting at. But my point is, is that if you've ever been around a, a young child who, who maybe the movie or the content in the movie is just straight up inappropriate, but let's say if it's just you and your good friends or your buddies sitting down watching it, um, for you as an adult watching it, you know, you may be like, ah, it's, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really into that. I don't really like that. And, you know, you might let it slide. It's not a big deal. But with the eyes of a five-year-old there, you're just like, oh, quickly, somebody get me the controller. Quick, pass, get, skip past this because I don't want them to watch this. You're freaking out because you're like, ah, their eyes are pure. That is a perfect description of me being convicted, not by anything they said, but by the fact that they're pure. They didn't do anything. There was this young, pure five-year-old that just was there. But by virtue of them being there, I was made aware of the fact that my eyes were watching something. I was exposing their eyes to something that was just, that was impure. That was not good. That didn't lead to flourishing. That didn't lead to life or goodness or wholeness or healing. And so the point of the matter is, is that this is what Paul is calling us to do. And Paul finishes with a statement in verse 19. I'm going to have the team come on up, and we're going to finish with this like, little verse that I want to read to you. Um, Paul says in verse 14, he says, And if anything, uh, for, for anything that becomes visible is light, and as Paul finishes with his little statement, he says, Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Paul finishes with a statement. Now, in short, this little statement has kind of baffled a lot of theologians because they're like, What is Paul talking about? Because Paul basically says, As it's written. You know, as it's been said, and it's kind of like this idea, like, hey, everybody knows about this particular verse, um, so I'm going to just drop it into my little sermon here in the book of Ephesians. Um, but Paul says, you know, therefore it says, so what is Paul talking about? You know, this kind of led to like three or four ways of identifying this. One it has to do with uh, this was sort of a combination of Old Testament passages that Paul is kind of piecing together and putting in this little letter. Um, some have thought, well, maybe this is what's called apocryphal Jewish writings. There are some other writings that were done um, during the New Testament time. Did I just get put down? Um, that, were, that were being described in the New Testament time. They didn't necessarily make it in the canon or what we call the scripture of the New Testament. Um, a third way of seeing this is that these were actually words from Jesus um, that were kind of passed down through what's typically called or commonly called the oral tradition, meaning um, stories predominantly were just told and this was sort of oral tradition. So this has baffled a lot of scholars and theologians as to, you know, where did this come from that Paul actually borrows this and says, just as it says, arise, O sleeper, and awake and see all this, um, which has led to some as well, probably the more common one, is that this was actually an example of an early Christian song. This is something that he's saying, that this is the church that organically arose. They sang music. They sang songs. This is just one of them. And what Paul perhaps is referencing is he's saying, look, you were once in darkness, but now you've been brought in the light. Live as people that are in the light, not as people that are in the darkness. Because then Paul finishes, because he's like, look, just as our song says, just as it's been written, just as we've sung, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I would imagine, for example, if Anna, for her, to do what a lot of times we may do, 
Because a lot of us, we, you know, we tamper. We, we kind of ask questions like, well, how close to darkness can I get to it without actually being sucked back into it? It's a wrong question. It's like a slave, an ex-slave basically saying, how close can I get back to being a slave without actually being fully owned? It'd be like Anna saying, how much can I actually flirt with my former pimp without him sucking me back into the life of slavery, defilement, brokenness? Look, guys, if we are in the light because Jesus acted lovingly upon us, let's walk as people in the light. Let's demonstrate the greatness of our God. Let's help expose darkness, not condescendingly, not with attitudes of arrogance or superiority, but with hearts overflowing with gratitude because God did something miraculous on our behalf to rescue us. This, this is the imperative that we've been given based upon the indicative that you were once in darkness, but now you've been brought into light. The reason why we can do this is because Christ, who is light, came into this world, shockingly plunged himself into darkness. He didn't have to. He came. He was repeatedly asked, what are you here for? What's your plan? What's your your game? What are you going to do? When are you going to overtake our enemies? And Jesus constantly refused to answer their questions because they were expecting Jesus says, get ready to take up your swords. We're going to fight soon. But Jesus never answered the questions, but Jesus often does answer in cryptic ways, and his whole point was to say, look, my aim, my purpose, my point in coming to this earth was to plunge myself into the darkness. I don't have to be here. I could create a brand new world and snap in my fingers and rid myself of all pain. But he says, out of love for that which is unlovely, because I see the ability that I can make something unlovely lovely by loving it. Jesus came into our darkness to rescue us, to bring us into light so that we can walk as children of light. My exhortation to you, based upon what God has done over you, is walk as children of light. If you are here this morning and you're not a believer, I'm going to invite you to come from the darkness to the light that Jesus offers. We have a good God to invite you to the family. So why don't we all stand? We're going to sing. We're going to respond. We have communion in the back as a way of reminding ourselves of what Jesus did, the price that he paid. We'll have some people off to the side that would love to pray for you. If you have anything that's going on in your life, you need prayer. Don't leave without having someone pray over you, serve you, love you. Don't leave especially without allowing Christ first to serve you, to wash you, to cleanse you. That's what he does. So God, right now we want to respond and love. Back to you.